What were holiness teachers saying about Christian participation in warfare? How did they understand the justification of war? How did they see Christ's teaching in light of war? I'm Dennis Metzler, and you're watching The Charge. Today we will consider one example in Thomas C. Upham. Upham lived from 1799 until 1872 and taught moral philosophy at Bowdoin College in Maine. He is considered to be one of the founders of American psychology and was active early on in the holiness movement. He is quoted by Pentecostal pacifist scholars Jay Beeman and Brian Pipkin in Pentecostal and Holiness Statements on War and Peace. At the time of writing, the young nation of America was already thoroughly experienced with war, having fought in some 25 wars, most of them against North American Indians. Upham's quote is from the section entitled 1842, from his writing The Manual of Peace. Upham writes, Every belligerent nation, with scarcely a single exception, scornfully rejects the imputation of being the original aggressor, and professes to prosecute its warlike measure for purposes of self-protection. And so long as we admit that defensive wars are allowable on Christian principles, so long we grant, for all practical purposes, everything which the advocates of war wish. The true doctrine is that human life, both in its individual and corporate state, as one and as many, is inviolable, that it cannot be taken away for any purpose whatever, except by explicitly divine permission, and that war, in every shape and for every purpose, is wrong, absolutely wrong, wholly wrong, and any doctrine short of this will fall altogether powerless and useless upon the broad surface of the world's crimes and miseries. It will dim the light of no sword. It will wipe the tear of no widow and orphan. Upham continues, in proceeding now to examine the subject of war in the light of the New Testament, we remark in the first place that war in all its forms is opposed by those numerous passages which require men to love their fellow men. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second I like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And Upham writes further, The Savior himself in the parable of the Good Samaritan has explained whom we are to understand by our neighbor. The commentary of the Savior authorizes us to understand the term, that is, neighbor, as including all mankind, every class and condition of men, however they may be separated from us by difference of language, by distance of country, by diversities of opinion, religion, customs, governments, and political interests, however they be from some unpropitious circumstances arrayed even in actual or supposed hostility. There is not, even under these circumstances, a release from the law of love. End quote. Upham quickly cuts to the heart of so much hypocrisy surrounding the justification of war. Government rulers are continually trying to advance their foreign policy objectives through war or the threat of war, 
yet always under the pretense that any military activity they are pursuing is purely defensive, convincing the public, and especially the church, that the other side is the aggressor is their primary public relations task. Great atrocities are justified through this deception. This practice is just as much the case today as in Upham's time. Significantly, Jesus had very little to say about killing per se. However, there is the occasion in John 8 where Jesus is tested by his foes to see how he addresses the need to uphold the use of capital punishment according to the Mosaic law, and this under Roman rule. Jesus does not say to those about to stone the woman caught in the act of adultery, put down your stones because capital punishment is wrong. Christ instead invites those without sin to cast the first stone, thereby undermining the whole enterprise of the would-be executioners by making them the folks of sin rather than the woman. Likewise, perhaps the overruling problem with a just war stance may not be its lack of ethical rigor, nor its opposition to the ways of Jesus, but that very flawed humans, often the most aggressive, ignorant, and full of vice, are both the decision makers in war as well as those who actually do the killing. Therefore, if we are to apply Christ's words here more expansively, if killing is to be done God's way, it can only be done by the holiest of people so as to minimize the horrors of war. Yet, something inside us recoils at the notion of holiness being a prerequisite for mass killing for the nation-state. To be sure, some wars are far more defensive than others, and some certainly fulfill the just war criterion for cause, at the least. Still, Upham is examining the vast majority of wars that are fought to advance and maintain the sovereignty of powerful nations and empires. Therefore, the only way to respond to the war question that is consistent and realizable and actually looks something like the life and teachings of Jesus is Upham's true doctrine, which at both the individual and corporate level holds that human life is inviolable. That is, because of who God is and what he has created humans as, we are prohibited from killing in war. Upham sees no exceptions as he condemns all war as wrong, absolutely wrong, wholly wrong. Upham recognizes the uselessness of any teaching that falls short of this total prohibition of war. Any doctrine that allows for war in a single particular situation could and has been used to propagate wars in any and every situation. The history of warfare in Christianized Europe and now Christianized America makes this painfully clear. Even if a convincing biblical and ethical argument were to be made that just war theory expresses the heart and mind of God, that doctrine, true as it may be, would nonetheless have no ability to check the militarists' unending willingness to go to war as simply a means of furthering their economic and political aims. The powers that be will always have the ability to make any war appear as a just war, often even getting the enemy to attack first. Upham makes it graphically clear that the doctrine of just war does not stop the immeasurable devastation and bloody horrors of war. But Upham does, of course, oppose all wars based on his reading of the New Testament, especially as it is tied to Christ's command to love your neighbor. 
Christ extended the notion of neighbor to go well beyond those people that we have much in common with. It includes people of very different languages, cultures, nations, political and religious orientations, and even those arrayed in actual hostility towards us. Even with unambiguous enemies warring against us, we are not excused from the obligation to love. If Jesus didn't make this clear enough to love your neighbor, he certainly did through love your enemy. Upton's challenge is twofold. We are called to analyze the biblical data, particularly the life, death, and teachings of Christ, and then thoughtfully discern whether warfare is an expression of Christ-likeness or not. Also, we are called to examine the historical data and analyze the motivations and means of those who have waged war throughout the millennia, especially those who are from so-called Christian countries. This historical analysis is needed so that the church may actually find plentiful examples of wars that meet the just war criteria and thereby prove up and wrong. Or, do we instead find that the overwhelming number of wars that Christians have blessed and fought in did not come close to meeting these standards? We so often see the state seductively co-opting the unsensing church into directly supporting the most heinous and wanton destruction of people, not actually serving the needs of the nation, but only strengthening the power elites. Under the spell of state propaganda, the church has often been on the wrong side of humanity, supporting Christianized empires from Rome to America as they impose their political, economic, and ultimately military wills on lesser nations who had little means to defend themselves. But if the church is in fact called to support and participate in just wars as a mandate from Jesus, are we ready to repent for our ancestors who did not go to war against the United States for genociding American Indian tribes? Surely, was there not just cause to wage war against the United States to prevent such comprehensive destruction of so many native peoples? The sword cuts both ways. Don't misunderstand me here. I have the highest regard for America, but we must not deceive ourselves about the nature of worldly kingdoms. However, we need to plainly state the obvious weakness and risk of pacifism. The great risk of pacifism is that we have far, far less of a chance to stop an invading army or a genocidal tyrant. But the greater risk of just war thinking, and even more so realism, is that we believers may unwittingly be the means by which the invading army or genocidal tyrant carry out their dastardly deeds. That is, in our earnestness to submit to governmental authorities and fulfill what appears to be a just mission, we in fact perpetrate ghastly atrocities, convinced we are doing God's will. History has proven this possibility to become reality over and over again. We have here two risks, the risk of being harmed and the risk of causing harm. Which one of these risks did Jesus choose? And what of those disciples who look most like Jesus throughout church history? Which risk did they choose? We must never forget that in the resurrection, death has once and for all been conquered. Therefore, we can fearlessly join with Jesus the King in facing death squarely never using lethal means to achieve security in this world. Our future in Him has been ensured.
I'm Dennis Metzler, and you've been listening to The Charge. We've got a lot more podcasts, so please check them out. Peace to everyone.